Right, if we can start moving in the direction of our seats, here we're going to be in First Samuel chapters nine and ten today. <clears throat> Let me just kind of recap a little bit about what's going on. Since we can't read all of it, we'll read some out of chapter ten here in a moment. But uh, this is going to be about Saul and his inauguration as king, the coronation. However, you want to uh, look at that. <clears throat> That's going to actually be in stages as well. But there's just some. A, as we find often in the Old Testament, the way the account deals with things, the things that are included, things that aren't included, are always interesting. But then it stops you to think, okay, why is it reported like this? Why is this information what we're reading about? And that comes into play, I think, a little bit here as well. <clears throat> so Saul and his father's uh, donkeys have wandered off and are lost. He sends Saul and a servant out to find them. And they look for them, and <clears throat> eventually they're gone so long that a servant says, Look, we better get back, or your father's going to be worried about us and not the donkeys anymore. And uh, <clears throat> so Saul says, Well, I hear there's a prophet. Basically what he says, we, I hear there's a prophet over here in this town. Let's go ask him. And as he comes in, this is all in chapter 9 here, and as he comes to the town, he uh, ends up meeting uh, Samuel who's on his way to one of the high places to do a sacrifice. And so he, uh, Saul, Samuel says, Saul, come with me. And what we find out is that the day before, God tells Samuel that Saul, the one who's going to be anointed king, is coming. And, and so you're supposed to anoint him as king. So Samuel invites him to stay and have a dinner. He puts him at the head of the table. He gives him a large portion of food. Saul knows something's going on. He says, you know, I'm just a, from a small tribe in Benjamin. Uh, you know, I don't deserve all this. What's going on? And Samuel says, well, you just sleep here tonight, and then tomorrow I'll tell you what the Lord has told me. And so in chapter 10, it's the next day. So let's stand and we'll read the first uh, eight verses or so of chapter 10 as, as our scripture reading. And I hopefully with what I just related to you that it will start to make some about what's going on here. First Samuel chapter ten. When Samuel took a then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him that is Saul and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men at Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they said, to, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? So what his servant had worried about had actually come true. Uh, the donkeys that you sent to seek are found. Oh, excuse me. The verse 3. Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak at Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they shall greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that you shall come to Gibeah Elohim, Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place 
with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what you, your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So, just an interesting uh, combination of the narrative as to uh, what's going on here that uh, I think deserves uh, some thought as we get into it. Um, last week we dealt with the people wanting a king, asking for a king, and we saw that on one hand it was always God's plan for Israel to have a king, in relation to Christ and his kingdom. In other words, you know, it's going to eventually be a, a kingdom that David would be the uh, king. And God would prophesy to David about his coming son. Jesus Christ would be the legitimate heir to the kingdom. Uh, and so forth. But Israel wants a king so they can be led like other nations are led. They don't want a king to help them remain faithful to the covenant. They want a king to the can replace their trust in God with trust in a man. They want it to look like the other nation. And so, even though having God as king could have meant paradise on earth, every physical need would be met, they would rather live like the world and, and do what they want to do. And so it, it just reinforces the nature of sin, that, that all mankind are sinners in Israel, among other things, just illustrates what sin does to us that we cannot do what is right. <clears throat> so, we've seen that the people want a king, but not for the right reasons. Uh, sometimes, I think, uh, if, if you just think about it in, in our own context, people, I've seen, I think, churches and certainly Christians who they kind of look at the, their leaders like that. What kind of leaders do they want in the church? And, and you find that it's similar reasons often. It isn't that I want a pastor, I want elders who are going to minister to me to help me grow in the Lord. I'm concerned about what they believe and what they teach and so forth. Uh, what I want them, to, what I'm looking for in a leader is someone who can take care of church matters, who can build our church so that we look like the churches around us. We, we want someone who will make our church successful in the sense that I see other churches. And, and that obviously is a problem. A lot of churches have, have fallen into that trap. Many want strong leadership skills, polished orators. And on one hand, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, as a pastor, as a preacher, I want to be able to communicate well and to lead well. And I'm sure Jeff would say the same thing. But there's a problem when they are far less concerned with the spiritual leaders and sound teachers, and the primary concern is how is this church going to grow in the five-year plan? Where do we want to be in five years? As if that's something that we can decide, and it's not something the Lord decides. Where, where, where this church will be in five years, I, I don't have a clue. I know where I'd like it to be, and I want it to be faithful, but that's the Lord's business, right? And yet, uh, you have these five-year plans and, and so forth. 
Uh, but this is the difference between a good leader and a bad leader. And so we're going to see this with Saul and David. We're going to see, right off the very bat, we're going to see Saul and what is emphasized about Saul and how David will be so much different. And we, we our account finished with what is going to lead to Saul's big downfall. Remember, Samuel told Saul, wait for me seven days. And then I'll tell you what to do. And Saul doesn't wait uh, for Samuel. Uh, and then he jumps the gun. He does what he wants to do. And that's really the beginning of the end already. As soon as it gets started, Saul's kingdom starts to fall apart. But God did mean, of course, for Israel to have a king. And certainly under the old covenant, a good king to be very beneficial to them. Remember, this is a patriarchal system. There are mediators who stood before the people, whether it be the fathers and husbands, or whether it be the kings and leaders, the elders. Uh, as the king goes, so will go the country. And the problem, of course, is that under the old covenant, they did not have a heart for God. Uh, you know, unless God actually saved that individual, most Jews were not saved. So they did not have a heart. They needed somebody to basically enforce the kingdom. And that's what, and we're going to see this as we study get into the history of Israel, good kings brought about good reforms. It caused the people to, to perhaps put away idolatry to the various levels. And as they did that, God blessed them. And the bad kings come along and get people to go back into idolatry. And just like clockwork, um, their enemies would start to overtake them and, and things would start to fall apart. And the people just couldn't learn it because, it, again, it's such a great example of sin. Sin, until God gives us a new nature, we, we cannot battle sin. We, we cannot change our heart. We cannot do good. There's none that doeth good, right? So Israel, you know, if, if we never had Romans 3, Israel is, is teaching us that, um, that, that what sin actually does to us. <clears throat> so in chapter 9, though, uh, as I related to you, there seems to be a rather uh, order, a, a several mundane order of events that seemingly have no bearing on the overall account. That is, this Saul's father's donkeys are wandering off. Saul and uh, his servant are looking for them. The servant, you know, says, "Well, we better get back now." And and it's like, well, what is going on? Here? And of course, it leads to them coming to Samuel and Samuel. Telling them, okay, here's some things that are going to happen as we read uh, tomorrow on your way down to where you're going. And so, you know, why is it recorded for us like this? And I think verses 15 through 17 of chapter 9 would explain to us why we, we read these kind of things. And it's something that I think opens up a lot of the narratives in the Old Testament. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because of their cry, their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord, told, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. It is he who shall restrain my people. And that's an interesting word. What, what do you mean the king is going to restrain the people? And I was reading like uh, uh, Gil said, uh, well, 
it could be restrained in the sense that he's going to uh, cause the people to do good, or perhaps Saul is saying, or you know, the Lord saying, he's going to restrain the people, he's going to be a, a bad king and put burdens upon the people, which all kings do to some degree. It's just an interesting word, we're really not sure how to take it, but it, it, I take it kind of in a negative sense, because almost everything said about Saul is negative, and probably the Lord is saying that, that he's my choice for king right now, and it's not going to be good. But anyway, how does verses 15 through 17 explain the previous uh, 14 verses? And I think if, if we left out these verses out, the story would just look pretty much like any story of any one of us. Just, you know, Saul's just going about his normal routine. And he would eventually find the donkey, or the donkeys would, that situation would be taken care of. Perhaps he would meet these men, they would give him gifts. You know, all the, the three things that we'll look at here in a moment that Daniel said would happen. But if we just read that and we didn't have these verses 15 through 17, well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't think too much about it. But what they do is remind us that everything that's going to happen is happened because I have directed it to happen. The Lord is being very careful here for them to know that there are no coincidences. What's going to happen are part of his plan. And so he, God puts these, I think, little parentheses in here to remind us that there is one who is ordering all the events, no matter how mundane they are, these donkeys wandering away and then eventually some being found and taken back. It's all, nothing's happening apart from God's will for his purposes. And so in that sense, the parentheses here, uh, where, where, where we see wild you know, God telling us how, why all this is happening, become, in one sense, the most important part of the narrative account. They're what we need to remember when we read other narrative accounts where it maybe isn't said like this, that nothing's changed, that when we read these things, God has ordained all these things to take place, and not, and, and then it, when it comes to our own lives, when we get up in the morning and Things happen and we don't, it's not what we wanted, we didn't see that coming, that's okay because God has already ordained what was going to happen tomorrow. And that's very important for us to, to remember. Okay, Proverbs 69, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes Man steps up from the Lord. How then can one man understand his way? And, and it reminds us that there is, we won't always understand it. Uh, we can make all the plans we want to, and it might work out to some degree. But uh, the Lord is doing His work, and we've got to be able to live within those parameters and to um, do well in them. So that that kind of leads us into chapter ten, and, and we read chapter ten and what happened uh, here when Samuel bumps into Saul and so forth. And uh, at the next day after the feast. Uh, they're leaving town, and Samuel says, send your servant on up ahead. i got something to tell you about that from the Lord. He tells them, well, as we started to read there, he, he, first of all, anoints his head with oil and kisses him and says, the Lord has chosen you. Anointing means, of course, uh, this idea of, of calling out for a certain purpose. He's chosen you to be the king 
over Israel. And so, uh, the, the most interesting thing in the first verse is this use of oil as anointing. And we're seeing, of course, really this is really the first time we see it with the, we saw it with the uh, priest. Remember, they got ready to be, start the service. They were first anointed, uh, kind of set apart uh, for that particular purpose before they would do their priestly duties. And here now, with the next office, which is the kingly office, they are also anointed with oil as God is setting them apart for a certain work. And so, uh, it's, will be, what, what's happening is that the New Testament, uh, narrative, what, what we find in the New Testament with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is all being set up for us. Because what we, what we will find then is that these, this anointing in the Old Testament is a picture of, in, in one sense then, an, an illustration or a prophecy of someday there will be an, the, the, Fulfillment of the prophet and priest and king, Jesus will also be anointed, but not with oil. And so we notice in our text that when Saul was anointed with oil, it was an outward sign, but that he's told that the Holy Spirit was going to indwell him, right? And it says that he became a new man, a different man after that. So very, the New Testament, I think, is being set up for us in types and shadows. And so, uh, there's a strong tie between someone being anointed physically in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit being poured out upon them spiritually in the New Testament. And there's a lot of scriptures that support this. We'll run through just a few. Uh, I, I, this might be familiar to all of us, but if it's not, it's, it's good to just be reminded of some of these things. It begins, I think the first time that it's used in where it's specifically said this is something that's pointing to the Messiah, it's Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And this is the, the Jesus speaking uh, in, in, prop, in a prophetic way, right? The Lord Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And of course, Jesus quotes from this uh, at the start of his ministry there in Nazareth and so forth. Uh, and so we know that, well, who, who knows when this took place? When was Jesus anointed for ministry? Yes, Ruth. That was John when he was baptized. And remember the Holy Spirit came down upon him. His baptism was in his anointing. The Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove. And he was filled uh, with the Holy Spirit. And that was the Lord. And, 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 and the Lord spoke from heaven. This is my beloved son, uh, you know, whom I am well pleased. So the Lord is putting his stamp, setting him apart for ministry at that point. So it was, he was identifying with the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. The Lord, basically the Lord is setting the uh, spirit down like that in the form of a dove and speaking from heaven was saying Isaiah was talking about this man this this is the one that the Old Testament this is your uh, long awaited Messiah and King Jesus Christ uh, Acts 10.38 you know of Jesus of Nazareth how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power 
and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So here in the Acts, they're referring back to these things that happened with Jesus. And so the anointing of the Holy Spirit, though, we, we know, is not just for Jesus, but we're told that we also will be anointed by the Holy Spirit for ministry. By ministry, I don't mean you know, full-time Christian ministry. We can be pastors or missionaries. As Christians, we all, if you're in the New Covenant and you know, you're a Christian, you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You don't ask for it. You don't pray for it. You don't wait for it. It comes upon you when you're converted. And so in 1 John 2, 7, And as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. So you are anointed and, and the Holy Spirit stays with us. It's the promise of the new covenant given to us in the Old Testament. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and it's true and it's not a lie, and just as it has taught you to abide with him. So the Holy Spirit comes upon us and it gives us the ability to, to understand and practice the word of God. So, it's, it's being set up for us in the uh, Old Testament. Now, another interesting fact, and I have no idea if it means anything. I've never read any commentator who said, oh, this is why this happened. But it's an interesting fact. It'll help you with Bible trivia to explain that sometime. There was another man, another saw from the tribe of Benjamin who appears on the scene as well, right? That was the Apostle Paul, who was saw, who, uh, was from the tribe of Benjamin, who was later named King Paul. And again, it's like, it's so coincidental that it's hard for me not to think, well, there's got to be some reason for it, but I assume that if there is, it's something we'll find out maybe in eternity. But anyway, it's an interesting fact to it. So Samuel says that Saul will come across three signs and say, well, why Why did the Lord say this was going to happen? Why did he ordain this, this kind of minutia, these things that really don't mean anything to happen? Well, it's because at that time it was a proof that the Lord was in this and this is the Lord's will. And, and they did not have the completed canon. They had very little scripture. So often the Lord would acquiesce to do things, uh, give them signs and answers to signs, so they would know uh, that this is truly God's will. And so it was not unusual for that to happen. And so the three things that were going to happen uh, as he went on his way, he was going to meet two men at a certain place who would tell you, first of all, that yes, your donkeys have been found, your father's beginning to worry for you and all that. Next, in verses 3 and 4, uh, you would meet three men, and they would give you gifts. And then in verses 5 and 6, you would meet a group of prophets who would be have a little band going, and they're you know, coming down, getting ready to go to prophesy and to do things for the Lord, and they're playing all these instruments. And when you meet them, you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and you're going to also prophesy. And this of course, gives us something to think about because I think there's very good evidence that Saul was not a believer and Saul was not a Christian. Now, you know, he is, um, but there's, when I say Christian, he's not an Old Testament believer. But 
I don't think he was. And yet we read here that the, old, that the Holy Spirit comes upon him and that he prophesies. And so there, were, there are some who would see that and say, well, clearly he's a believer then. Um, well, he certainly doesn't act much like it. And uh, you say, well, we saw the same thing with Samson, did we not? Samson was filled with the Holy Spirit. And while we were studying Samson, we pointed out that the, uh, it was not unusual for the Holy Spirit to come upon an Israelite to empower him to do a work of deliverance for his people, which is exactly what Samson did. It's what Sam, uh, Saul is going to do. So I would think, now while this is a type of what happens to us as Christians, I don't think that Saul was regenerated, but that the Holy Spirit came upon him to enable him to uh, defeat the Philistines. And he prophesies, but again, I don't think it necessarily means that some kind of spiritual thing, word of God like a prophet would, but he prophesies. He, he utters something, probably something that was going to happen, some word from God that was going to happen that comes that would have to come true for them to believe it. And, uh, you know, I guess there are those who would argue with me that point, and uh, I know I think that's probably pretty standard among commentators and, and people that I know. But I, I think that the important thing here is that we are seeing, uh, again, types uh, of the New Testament. You say, well, yeah, but it says he turned into another man. And I mean, that's so obvious. What happened? We get to this uh, in our text in 1 Corinthians. You aren't what you once were. And, and isn't that conversion language? Yes, it is conversion language. But again, in the Old Testament setting, it could mean that he was a he was a different man for a while, because we know that the Holy Spirit at some point is going to leave Saul, and so you've already got a problem to say, well, this is his conversion, because if it's his conversion, the Holy Spirit's not going to leave him, at least not in a permanent way, right? So I, I don't think we have to look at it as conversion, uh, but as a the New Testament being set up. And again, even if I'm wrong about that, even if it, even if Saul is a true believer, uh, it still doesn't change the fact that we're being set up, I think, to understand what goes on in the New Covenant. Anyway, but, so that's, that's you know, where I am with all that. We notice in verses 7 and 8 that along with the Spirit, there were also some specific orders to Saul. Uh, in other words, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, the power of God, to, but, he, but, he, but not to do whatever he wanted to do. Now, Saul, Samuel does say, look, go out and, and do what you've got to do. There's a measure of freedom given to Saul to, to be king and to do what he needs to do. But he was not free to just do whatever he wanted to do. The Spirit comes upon someone for a specific task. And clearly as Christians, we should be able to identify with that, right? That when, when we're saved, the Holy Spirit comes in and, and regenerates us and gives us a new heart. It is to serve him. And again, you're, we're going to see how First Corinthians 6 goes along with this hand in hand in so many ways. <clears throat> so he has a measure of freedom. But remember that Samuel wrote all the things that Deuteronomy said about what a king is supposed to do and put it up before the Lord, that, that the king was 
kings were to write these things out while they were kings, to be reminded that they had a duty to perform uh, as king. And so uh, what we're going to see here is that in a week, next week, literally in, in seven days from here, their day, Saul, I think, is going to do something that shows that he really doesn't have a new heart. He's not been regenerated. That he was given a certain measure of power for a while to be king, but that did not in any way converge in which I think what happens next in a week from now will also bring that out. <clears throat> but it certainly reminds us that this is always how the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is taught in the Bible, uh, and that is that it comes upon us. You know, first of all, it is the Holy Spirit. It's not the tongue spirit. It's not the feeling spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us to make us holy. Holy means to separate us unto the Lord, to serve Him, right? The Holy Spirit makes us holy. He sanctifies us. He creates Christ in us. That's, that's what the Holy Spirit's for. But does he, did he at times, uh, at the, in the early church give gifts, uh, I, I believe to be sign gifts of, of healing and tongues and, and words of knowledge and so forth for a specific purpose? Yes. But that was temporary. That was, that was a side issue. Primarily, uh, the Holy Spirit is given to make us holy. And, and it's amazing how often Christians can forget that, it seems to be almost entirely. There are so many consumed with wanting some dramatic displays of the Spirit's power. But what, what they mean by that is not humble me, Lord. Make me shine for the Lord even in the darkest days. Now, now I think a lot of Christians do pray that, but there are so many who when they think of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered, no, they want those dramatic displays of Spirit's power, but they don't have any interest in spiritual power. They, they you know, healing is not a spiritual power. It, it's not to say the Holy Spirit doesn't, it doesn't come from the Holy Spirit, but when I say spiritual power, I mean the, the spiritual power that Paul emphasizes in Galatians 5. Uh, in, in our in our text in First Corinthians, being like Christ and, and abstaining from those things that dishonor the Lord, that's what we should be wanting the Spirit to do for us. I'd be praying to the oh Lord, give me tongues, you know, give me, uh, you know, that, some, some. That was a, the Corinthians' problem. As we're going to see, Paul's going to get to this in, in chapters twelve through fifteen or fourteen, uh, that they were they were, they had these. Spectacular gifts, and they were in a, in a source of pride. Look at me! Look what I can do! They completely—they were abusing each other in one way or another. In the gifts, and completely misses the point. And uh, so we just want to be careful that because this is something. This is a huge problem in what I should say, Christendom. I mean, obviously, a lot of the people out there involved in all this are false prophets, and I don't. Considered to be in the kingdom at all, but it's certainly there are Christians, you know, a lot of Christian churches that can get caught up in this and it can, and it can be a problem. We want to try to um, understand it the best we can. So these people want tongues, but not revelation. 
They want healings of the flesh, but not healings of the soul. They don't want to understand the Bible uh, so that they can be conformed to his image. They want the Holy Spirit to give them some outward work so they can feel good about themselves. Perhaps even if they want feel like, well, at least if I have power to demonstrate it, uh, I know I'm saved. Well, again, you know, Paul talks about how to make your calling election sure, and it's never by outward signs of the Holy Spirit. So, again, the Holy Spirit speaks, or the Bible speaks to us. Well, in the latter part of chapter 10, starting especially in verse 20, well, 17 down to verse, especially in verse 20, saw there's a public coronation, as it were, where Samuel tells the nation that God has given him a, 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 a king, and he does it by having all the tribes pass before him, and Benjamin is signaled out, then the clans, and Kish, uh, the family that he comes from, is signaled out. And, uh, and then all his sons come before him, and, and, and well, there's, there's somebody else missing, because none of these are the right one, and they find Saul hiding behind the baggage. And they call him out. You're the one that God has chosen. And Saul knew this because he had been anointed earlier, right? But Saul is initially humble. Uh, maybe shy would be a better word. Uh, that's not always the same thing. We're not the same thing at all in some cases. But he's very hesitant. He, he's certainly humble enough to say, I don't deserve to be king. He's reluctant to be king. Uh, but this all quickly falls apart. But they bring him out, and there's a couple of things that we that our text tells us about Saul that is very interesting. It's, it's pretty telling. We see, first of all, in chapter 9, verse uh, 2, and he had a son, talking about Kish, whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Then in the latter part of chapter 10, we read this again about his height. And so the only real good thing about Saul that is ever mentioned is that he was a good-looking man. He looked the part. And I think you know it's unmistakable that the Lord is impressing upon them. You guys want a king so you can look the part. I'm going to give you the king who's outwardly going to have the qualities you want, but the problem is that spiritually he is void. And David will be the one who, it, what are we told about David? He had a heart after God. And so he he had the right heart. Saul looked good, but he did not have the heart. And so that was, you know, and in, in, in as, as Samuel's looking for David later on to anoint him, we read there because it's, it's similar to Saul. All of uh, Jesse's sons come. Samuel says, I want to see your sons. They all come. And he looks at them. You know, they're good-looking men. They're young. They're strong. They're warriors. And uh, is this all? And, well, yeah, the youngest is out there uh, keeping sheep. Well, go get him. And here's the, the kid. He's just a kid at the time, perhaps you know, a teenager. But he's not the part. He's, he, how can he be king? But that's the one 
that God chose, and that and that's where we read about Samuel says, uh, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. So there's a, a huge contrast between David and Saul that we have to think about. That we got to be very careful about judging people and about judging ourselves by outward appearances, whether that be not just beauty or ugliness, but uh, not, and, you know, health, sickliness, uh, a poor, rich, talented, uh, perhaps not particularly talented, smart, not so smart. Those are all things that we have to deal with in one way or another, but that has nothing to do with the value of somebody, whether they can serve the Lord, uh, and how we are to treat one another. And so these things are, I think, are certainly being um, brought out to us. And so, um, as they start the festivities, uh, the other interesting thing here, and we'll close with this, is that Samuel uh, puts a big negative in the whole thing. And he goes through the, the whole thing about, you know, the only reason you're doing this is because you, you've rejected God. And so it's a big negative. He's already said this, but he just reminds the people about it, and it just kind of reminds me, and we're getting towards the end here, so I'll kind of paraphrase some of the stuff I was going to say, that we got to be careful that, you know, Samuel was not concerned about the people having a good time, about being religious, about ceremonies. It's not that those things are wrong in and of themselves, but Samuel says, I want us to know what's really going on here. So, I remember, in, in, like I have in, in years past, in different churches, Especially when we had the older hymn books and some of them, you know, you know, this this one comes from a part so I, I doubt very seriously getting too much worry too much about the words you know. Some of the older hymn books, you come across a song that meh and I would just point it out. Well this okay, this is it's a good song, but let's just remember that this particular phrase perhaps isn't all that great. Uh you know, Christmas carols off the You know, well that it's okay, except it says this, and man, just, just, just remember, truth is more important than our sentiment, our traditions, our, our having a good time. Nothing wrong with all that stuff, but never get too far away from what we are doing, from the truth. We want to be accurate. And Samuel reminds me, and as a pastor, I feel like, you know, it's a time, not just that I have, but we all have, that to it always be evaluating what we're doing, whether it be in church, whether it be in our homes, you know, our singing. Uh, you know, nothing's written in stone except the Word of God. And so Christians, are, are especially Baptists, have a history of always reforming. It, it was something that, that was brought out during the Reformation, but the Baptists, even before that, were, were known for, we always examine everything we are doing by the Word of God. And if we can't, feel, either, at least by principle, support it from God's word, then we need to stop doing it. I don't care if it's something that, well, I was, you know, my family's always done this. Well, I don't care. I think about, let's say, let's say a, a, a Native American gets saved. And now all of a sudden, he's got all these traditions that it's all, you know, reeks of paganism, of false gods and things. And he's going to have to turn his back on, on a lot of that stuff because it, it's 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 pagan. And you say, well, I mean, that's who I am. No, 
We saw that in First Corinthians. We are Christians. We are children of God. I don't care what nation you were born in. I don't care what traditions you were raised in. It's not saying that you have to just turn your back on all that stuff. But we have a new identity, and that's our identity. And it's got to affect everything, the way we live, the way we speak, the things we do, our traditions, our singing, you know, everything. And I so always say, well, you got a lot out of that, you know, saying it'll be negative. Well, it wasn't really being negative. He was just saying, look, in all your celebration of having a king, make sure you understand what led to that celebration. Make sure you understand the, the problem you have with the Lord. And keep those things in mind because we're going to see that this is going to be a problem that Israel's going to face, deal with their entire history because they really never learned it. But anyway, we'll stop there today. Any questions or comments for this day, for your word and for the truths of it, for the examples that are set before us? We got to sometimes dig, think about them for a while, but they're there. God's word is plain. Uh, it is uh, needful for us. Uh, there's no excuse for us not to know your will through the, uh, the way you have revealed yourself through your word and for Jesus Christ. We're thankful for that and we pray that we would be full of the Holy Spirit, that he would have a perfect way in our life as he, through your word, conforms us to Christ. May that be our focus in Jesus' name.